have your Bibles, I hope you do, turn to Mark chapter 12. We're going to be in Mark chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17 this morning. So Mark 12, 13 through 17. And actually, we're going to start by, by reading the passage. So Mark 12, verses 13 through 17. So hopefully you're there. And you can follow along as I begin reading. Mark 12, beginning in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to try to trap him in his talk. And they came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. So, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to, said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and whose inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Well, it's a short passage, and, and it's really centered on one question. And so let's, we're going to work through this passage, and, and actually the outline that, that I put together, it's a little, little out of order. So, so just beware, we're going to start in the middle. We're going to start with the question, because this whole, this whole passage is centered on that question. And so first we're going to look at the question there in, in the second part of verse 14. And then, then we'll move backwards, forwards, backwards, and look at the background. Okay, what, what leads up to the question, verses 13 and 14. And then finally we'll see, we'll look at Jesus' answer. So that's kind of the, the outline. That's the way we're going to be going. So let's start there with verse 14, the question. So the question put simply, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Basic question. This entire interaction is, is, is centered upon this, and this question aims to get at the heart of Christian allegiance. That, that's why we've titled the message, A Question of Christian Allegiance. You see, part, we'll see in, in, in the coming minutes that these men, these questioners, they want to create a dichotomy. They want, to, they want to force Jesus to say either A, you worship God and don't pay taxes, or B, you do pay taxes and worship Caesar. Okay, so, so it's an allegiance issue. They want to know who are we supposed to, to pay our allegiance to, and they, they want to paint it in such a way that there's only two options, either worship God or worship Caesar. And so that's, that's, that's the underneath the question, but on the surface, the question is simply, is it lawful? Is it lawful for us, for us to pay taxes or not? Does God's law, teacher, permit us to pay taxes, or does it forbid us from paying taxes? And the way the question is designed, there, there's two options. Yes, you pay taxes. No, you don't. So that's, that's, that's the setting, that's the question that they're asking. It seems simple on the surface, but as we see it, it's more complicated than that. And so we'll, we'll see how Jesus responds to that, but, but now let's look at the background. What, what's the background that, that leads to this simple question? So look there at the background, verses 13 and 14. So first thing to notice there in verse 13 is to notice the parties that are involved. Notice these two groups of people that are involved in, 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 in making, in generating this question. There's the Pharisees, you see there in verse 13, some of the Pharisees, and then Second, you see the Herodians. So these are the parties involved. We, we know the Pharisees. We, we, we come across them very often. These are the, the anti-Roman Jews. Right? They don't like the fact that they're under 
Roman rule. Their aim is, is to keep God's law. That's what they want to do. They're law keepers. They want to be righteous according to the law. Now, we know from reading the gospel, they, they miss the whole point of the law, but they still are endeavoring to keep it. They are concerned with the right worship of God. And that's the Pharisees. They, they want to see God rightly worshiped among the Jews. And then the second party is the Herodians. Now, we don't see this group nearly as often. One commentator, in fact, not, not very flattering description, he said that a Herodian was a man of the world who despised all religion and cared more for pleasing men than God. Uh, a broad description. Uh, but this group, what we do know is they certainly would have, would have been avid supporters of, of the, the dynasty of Herod, the, the Herodian dynasty. They, they would be considered pro-Roman. So, so they were pro these rulers, these Roman rulers over the Jews. They, they were certainly in favor of the political rule of Herod as it was. So, so they wanted, they were concerned with stable political structures. That's what they wanted. So the Pharisees wanted the right worship of God. These guys wanted the stable political structure. And so these two groups, hopefully you can see, they're, they're not allies. They're not natural allies. They, in fact, probably wouldn't agree on anything. But here, yet, in this instance, they are united. And they're united against Jesus. They want to trap him. So in Jesus, these Pharisees, they see their religious influence being challenged. This, this Jesus is rising, and he's challenging their respect, their authority, their, their influence among the Jews. So, so they want to they put him out. And then in Jesus, the Herodians, they see their political stability. I mean, this, this man was riding in on a donkey and being hailed as, as the king, the son of David. So, so they see their influence, their political rule, their political stability being challenged. And so Jesus is a threat to both groups. And so they come together to, 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 to question him in an attempt to trap him. Now, we should note that this isn't the first time that we've seen these two groups together in Mark's gospel. You can write down Mark 3, verse 6, all the way back. I don't remember what month that was, but all the way back in Mark 3, there's an instance where Jesus, the, the outset of his ministry, he's in the synagogue, and there's a man with a withered hand, and, he, and they're watching him to see what he's going to do. And he heals the man on the Sabbath and sends him out. And verse 6 of Mark chapter 3 says, immediately... The Pharisees go out of the synagogue, they're angry, they're fuming, and they held counsel with guess who? The Herodians. And they held counsel against him, seeking how they might destroy him. Okay, so that's another place where these two groups are, are, are colluding together to, to destroy Jesus. So this coalition, it's not new. They've been trying to destroy Jesus from almost the beginning of his, out of, of his ministry. And so these are the parties involved. But notice also the, the, the purpose or the reason why they're coming together. Look there at verse 13. They, they come together, Mark records, to trap Jesus in his talk. They want to trap him. They want to trick him, test him, catch him. This, this verb, trap, is what's used of animals tracking their prey. So, so think of the, the cheetah after the gazelle. Right? They, 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 they're waiting, they're waiting. When, when can we get them? And, and here's an opportunity that they see. So they come together to try and trap him, to, to conquer him. They want to discredit him. They want to put an end to the threat that they feel from Jesus. And so they find him and they approach him. But notice they don't ask the question first, do they? They don't, they don't start, their intro isn't asking the question. Rather, they set him up. Look there at verse 14. They approach, teacher, we know, we know that you're true. We know you're true and we know you don't care about anyone's opinion. Not ours, not theirs, no one's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, teacher, but you truly teach the way of God. 
right? They are just schmoozing Jesus, right? Setting him up, buttering him up before hitting him with their decided upon trick question, right? That's what they want to do. They're, they're going to snap the trap, but first, they're going to ease their way in. Their mind, Jesus, just how true he is, just how much they admire his ability to, to always tell the truth no matter how it's received. They remind him of just how much they respect him, the fact that he doesn't he, he does nothing but truly treat, teach the word of God. So, so they're building him up. Now, all of this, as I said, it, it's just hypocritical flattery. Right? They don't mean a word of this. That's clear. They, they don't mean one word. They're simply building him up, knowing that their question is going to set a trap for him. So they're making sure that Jesus doesn't have an easy way out. So they're saying, you always tell the truth. You always, whatever the question is, whatever the issue is, you speak the truth. You don't care what anyone thinks. So now when they ask him the question, he's going to have to tell the truth. They think they're trapping him. They're setting him up. No easy way out. But the irony of this statement, of this setup, is that everything they say about Jesus is true, isn't it? Everything they say. They don't mean a word of it, but it's all true. Right? He doesn't care about anyone's opinion. He isn't swayed by appearances. Right? These Pharisees, they don't fool him. He sees past their, their external they're, they're whitewashed tombs. He sees past the external, and he truly teaches the way of God. With this, with this false flattery, these, these, these men, this group of people, they end up making a profoundly true statement about Jesus' teaching and character. He is everything that they say he is, though they don't believe it or mean it. And then look, the last, last part of, of setting or background, the, the tax itself. So, so they, the question, it, it centers around this tax so in order to understand the dynamics at work here, the, the kind of the social construct, the setting, here, here's, kind of to, to, here's a, a quote to help us set the stage, or, or just background. So, so the land of Palestine, where they are in Jerusalem, it's under the rule of the Romans. Okay, so these Jews, they're, they're captives in their own country. Right? There's foreign rule over them. And now some Jews, they see these Roman rulers and they go along with it quite willingly. Right? They, they say, well, this is how it is. We might as well become friends with them. And so, so they, these Jews, as a consequence, by, by going along with the Romans, they're able to profit considerably. Think about the tax collectors. That, this is their category. They, okay, the Romans are over us. Might as well be their friends. Okay, so, so they're tax collectors, and, and they get wealthy. They get wealthy from working with the Romans. Now, other Jews, so, so that's a small portion. Other Jews, they, they chafed under the Roman yoke. So, so we're Jews. This is our land. I can't believe that we're being ruled by foreigners in our own land. There's this national pride that drives them against anti-Roman rule. Some of them, it's because of this heavy taxation that's required to, to operate this Roman imperial system. But also, and I think this is the main issue, there's deeply held religious beliefs. So these Romans... They represent an idolatrous and wicked group of people. Their rule is an offense, an affront to God himself, who, they would say, is the only right ruler of the Jews. And so the Romans have set up a false god. And so for these Jews, there is no aspect of Roman rule more objectionable than that of the annual tribute or the tax, the, the, the issue that's being discussed here. They had to pay it in the emperor's silver coins. And so this tribute, it was initiated in, in Palestine there in, in, in A.D. 6. Okay, so, so a few decades prior to this. And when it was first instituted, there's this revolt led by a name named Judas the Galilean. 
So they, they institute this, this, this yearly tax, this tribute that has to be paid, and he says, no way, and he revolts. And, and the Roman governing authorities, they, they violently put down this revolt. And so the thinking behind the revolt, as I just mentioned, it's, it's these Jews, we're not going to pay taxes to Caesar because it's a worship issue. If we pay taxes to Caesar, we're worshiping Caesar, thus neglecting the worship of God. So to them, paying taxes to Caesar was treasonous. How dare we do that? I mean, think about, think about the Jews waiting for their Messiah, the son of David who's going to overthrow Rome. We're not going to give money to a sinking ship. We're waiting for our king. We're not paying Caesar. And so this is the setting. These are, these are the groups. These are the Jews. And this tax. And so we understand the trap behind the question now. Should we pay taxes or not? Tell us, teacher of God's way, what's the answer? And here, it's a dilemma. Yes, pay taxes. He discredits himself in the eyes of the majority of the Jews. To those whom this tax was an odious token of subjection to Rome. So, yes, pay the tax. These people say, you want us to worship an idol? To say yes is to anger those people, to to promote idolatry. So answer yes, that's option A, behind door one. Anger the religious Jews who who, want to worship God. Answer no. Do we pay taxes? No. Let's face it, this man is no different than Judas the Galilean. He's leading a revolt. Get, get the guards. Let's put this man down right now. Arrest him. Crucify him. He is leading a revolt. He told his followers not to pay taxes. And so this is a trap. Yes, alienate one group. No, alienate another group. These men aren't just asking a simple yes or no question, right? They're asking a question that's loaded with the hopes of trapping Jesus. And they've organized the question in such a way that no matter what the answer he gives, either yes or no, he will lose credibility. He appears to be in a no-win situation. I mean, and it's actually quite a brilliant question. And if their goal is to trap Jesus, they've generated a perfect question to do just that, haven't they? And if it weren't Jesus, their plan would probably work. Right? But unfortunately for them, it was Jesus. Right? So he sees through the question. He sees underneath what they're trying to do. And so let's look at Jesus' answer there. In verses 15 through 17, his answer. So first notice verse 15. Mark records, knowing their hypocrisy, he says to them, why do you put me to the test? He knows their hypocrisy. Why why are you testing me, Jesus asked, and making this statement. He wants them to know that he knows. I know what you're doing. You're testing me. You're trying to trap me. I know that that's what you're doing. So he wants them to know that he knows what's going on behind their question. Which also means that he knows that they think they've trapped him. I know you're trying to test me. I know you think you have me in a corner. But it's not as clear as you think it is. So, so look at Jesus' answer then in the middle of verse 15. Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Bring me a coin. So this coin in question, this tax, this coin that you're going to have to use to pay taxes, the, the coin that's at the center of this controversy, bring it to me. Verse 16, they, they brought it to him. Now, some people say this is, this is a, a condemnation of the men themselves who, who just pull one out of their pocket. And if they're really concerned about the worship of God, how would they have one in their pocket? I don't think there's clear evidence that that's the case. Maybe that's the case, but they bring him one or they show him one, Matthew's Gospel records. So, so they present this coin that Jesus asked for. And he said to them there in verse 16, whose likeness and inscription is this? They say Caesar's. 
And so this coin in question, it would have been a, a Roman denarius, this, this one silver coin. And Jesus, as he observes, would have had a picture, an image, a likeness of the Caesar on it, of Tiberius Caesar. And above it or, or below it, somewhere, it would have said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus himself. So it'd be this picture of Caesar and this inscription claiming that this is the son of the divine Augustus himself. And so Jesus says, show me the coin. He knows what it's going to look like. And he says, whose likeness and inscription is this? To which they say it's Caesar's. Which then enables Jesus to very simply answer their question. Verse 17, Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Whose coin is it? Jesus asked. Whose picture is on it? Whose name is on it? Who does the coin belong to? It's a simple question. It's Caesar's coin, isn't it? It's Caesar's. Who should the coin then be given to? Back to Caesar. How could anyone argue that Caesar doesn't deserve that coin? Right? It's his. It's got his picture and his name on it. It's come from him, and it's going to go back to him. It is Caesar's coin. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Plain and simple. To which the Herodians hear, no problem here. He's not an insurrectionist. We just heard him say, give Caesar his money. So Jesus, up to this point, he's answered the question in a pretty straightforward way, right? Yes. Should we pay taxes? Yes. He answers it in a seemingly straightforward way. You ought to pay taxes to Caesar. Which then makes us ask, well, what about this other group? Those who, upon hearing, pay taxes to Caesar would have been angry. What would Jesus say to them? How do he respond? Okay, pay taxes to Caesar, yes. But that's not all Jesus says. He doesn't stop there. Notice how he continued his answer. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. Now notice what Jesus is doing. I, th I think this is the main point. The original question was, do we pay taxes or not? That's, that's the question that was asked. And as we said, the underlying assumption beneath that is either yes, we pay taxes to Caesar, therefore we worship him, or no, we don't pay taxes to Caesar because we only worship God. And Jesus responds by showing that the issue is not as complicated as it was made out to be. In other words, when Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's, he is implying that the worship of God is not obstructed, prohibited, belittled by the pain of taxes to Caesar. That's his point. Give to Caesar what's his and give to God's what's his. It's not one or the other. Jesus is saying you can do both and you should do both. In this case, according to Jesus, giving to Caesar and giving to God are not incompatible. And so Jesus, in this answer, he avoids both pitfalls. What wisdom on display here, seeing the issue and going right to the heart of it. Which is why Mark ends the passage with, they, mar they marveled at him. How's he going to answer this one? Wow. What, what, did he, what, what did he say? They marveled at him. And so that, that concludes the, the passage. Now, now here's, where, here's where the work gets hard. As, as, a, as a teacher, as a pastor, how does this apply? How do, how do we apply this? And so I have three simple applications that I think come from this passage. Now, I'll have to bring in other passages, but, but here's, here's how I think this, this passage speaks to us here 
today. First application is allegiance to Caesar. Allegiance to Caesar. Now, I contemplate and put a lowercase a. Right? Some people say, no, that word, you can't have allegiance to Caesar because that's a, a wholehearted thing. So it's a lowercase a. It's, it's what I mean when we say I pledge allegiance to the flag. Okay, so allegiance to Caesar. And the, the point, the application is that Christians ought to be good citizens. Christians ought to be good citizens. The default Christian attitude towards human government is that of submission and respect. I mean, I think that's what Jesus means. He says, give to Caesar what Caesar's. As Christians, we owe our allegiance to the human governing authorities that we find over us. Christians have responsibility. I'd say God-given responsibility to the government. Jesus was not a revolutionary in the sense that his aim was to overthrow the existing human government. That wasn't his point. So he's not this revolutionary to overthrow the government. My kingdom is not of this world. That's what he says when he's being arrested. Jesus here affirms the legitimacy of human government and the principle of taxation itself. Give to Caesar what Caesar's. Christians have a responsibility to the government. So as followers of Jesus, we're not permitted to carry out acts of violence against human authorities. Right? We're, we're prohibited from doing that. We're not permitted to withhold paying taxes. It's just not, it's not an option for us. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Christians have a responsibility. Now, this isn't just Jesus. I, I put down two other passages. Listen to Paul in Romans 13. This is a good passage to, to meditate on, to, to memorize. Listen to Romans 13. Listen to what Paul says. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Here's why. For, here's the ground. Why are we to be subject? For there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Remember, who's the ruling authority when Paul's writing this? Verse 2, he continues, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Then later in verse 5, Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities, listen to how he describes the authorities, are ministers of God. Did you know we have ministers that, that aren't employed by the church that are given by God? That's what Paul says. Romans 13, verse 5, verse 6. They are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. So, so Paul understands there's responsibilities for Christians to the government. Peter, write down 1 Peter 2, verses 13 and 14. Peter writes, so another New Testament author, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now there's another passage in Titus and a few others. There's consistent themes throughout the New Testament that understands all human authority as having been ordained by God, so that these authors can call governing authorities servants of God, ministers of God, sent by God. And, as I just said, these New Testament writers are writing about the Caesars, those in rule over them as the New Testament is being written, these pagan evil rulers. I mean, read about Roman authorities. Nero, 
Good grief, that's who they're writing about. Be subject to them. If you think we have it bad in our country, I'd encourage you to do some research. And yet, despite the great evil of the Caesars, these New Testament authors consistently teach Christians respect and submission to the governing authorities. And so we owe our allegiance to Caesar. One more note, we ought to recognize that Jesus didn't come to establish a Christian government. That's not his point. He hasn't come to establish a Christian government. That's not his goal. If it was, he would have overthrown Caesar and set up a Christian society right there. But his kingdom is not of this world. That's not what he did, which means that as Christians, we do not have to bear this burden of thinking that the solution to our world's problems, our our country's problems, is to Christianize the governing authorities. That's not the solution. That was never the point. There's no such thing as a Christian government or a Christian nation. Nations don't repent and believe. Individuals do. We're deceived if we think that we can establish a Christian government here in our country. Now, we, we certainly we pray for our leaders, and we, we should pray that God would raise up Christian men and women to serve in our government. Absolutely. I'm not saying we don't do that. But to think that if we get enough Christians in our whole country, we'll become a Christian nation, that, that's foolish. That's, that's not ever God's purpose. I'll say more about that. So if you're angry now, just hang with me. God has given governing authorities to encourage good conduct, Right? Human government is in the realm of common grace. So that people who live under governments, they experience God's blessing in ways that they wouldn't. Think about anarchy. When there's no government, there's no, there's no boundary. There's, there's no thing to prohibit doing evil. And so governments are set up to encourage good conduct, to praise those who do good, to punish those who do evil, to be a terror. So that when, when we think about going and doing evil, we should think, wait a minute, I don't want to get arrested. That, that God has set up governments in such a way that that's a purpose that it, that it carries, that it, that it accomplishes, to bear the sword. So we owe our allegiance to Caesar. But then second point, we owe our allegiance to God. Now one thing I want to point out from our text that, that I skipped over is there in verse 16. So if you still have your, your Bible open, look there at verse 16. So in verse 16, they they bring Jesus the denarius. He asks for it, and he says to them, whose likeness and inscription is on this? And they say, Caesar's. Then Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So so follow the logic of of this coin discussion. He says, the coin, it belongs to Caesar. Why? Because it bears Caesar's likeness and inscription. Right? You follow that logic? It's Caesar's. It has his, his image on it. It's his. It belongs to him. Now, what I skipped, when Jesus continues in verse 16, he says, give to God the things that are God's. So he's making a point, and I think he intends the same logic that was just used with the coin to be used here. In other words, Jesus is saying, give the coin to Caesar because the coin is made in Caesar's image. It bears Caesar's mark, but give to God what belongs to him. And the question is, well, what bears God's image? Every man... Every woman, every person that's standing around here doing their business in Jerusalem, in the temple, all of this going back and forth, these are image bearers. As Jesus stands, he looks around, he sees another image, the image of God that's being born by men and women traveling and carrying on in Jerusalem, and they all owe God something. Give to God what belongs to him, which is your very self. Right, that, that's the point. The, the coin bears Caesar's image, give it to him. Humans bear God's image, they are to be given to him. 
They owe him. Every person there, every person here, whether you know it or not, you belong to a maker. You are owned. You're property of someone. And you owe him your allegiance. Why? Because he made you. You bear his image. That's true of every person that's ever lived on this earth. Every person owes something to God because every person has, that has ever lived on this earth has been created in God's image. And these Pharisees of all people ought to have known this. As image bearers, we belong to God. We owe him everything. We'll see this in a few weeks in a couple passages where, where Jesus asked about the greatest commandment. I think that's a continuation of what do we owe God? We owe him our hearts, our soul, our minds, and our strength. Our love to him, our whole selves to him, and, and our neighbors likewise. That's, we'll see that in a couple weeks. We owe our allegiance to God, which leads to our last point of application. Number three, don't get confused. Don't get confused. So these first two points, they stand. Allegiance to Caesar, allegiance to God. And normally there's no conflict. Like in this, in this situation, there's no conflict. Pay Caesar his tax and pay God what he, uh, what he deserves. So normally there's no conflict, there's no contradiction. But... Sometimes, sometimes the worship of God and submission to Caesar are in conflict. And in these cases, there ought not be any confusion regarding Christian allegiance. In cases where there is conflict between worship of God and worship of Caesar, Christians are always to aim to obey God over government. Always. Always. Allegiance always Allegiance to God always trumps. I mean, the reality is that in a fallen world, there's always an inherent, there's always inherent in civil authority a tendency to reach beyond its appointed function. And that, that's inherent in a fallen world. Civil authority, they, they, want to, they want to reach this level of self-transcendence, which is why there's, there's men walking around saying, I'm divine, I'm, I'm Caesar. Right? They've, they've overstepped their bounds. And when this is the case... Christians aren't always to seek to make perfectly clear that divine honors belong to God alone. Right? When, when, when a government makes divine requirements of Christians, there are always be a default. We, our allegiance is to God and God alone. Scripture is filled with examples of this. And examples where God's faithful were forced to obey God at the cost of dis, or with a purpose or the result of disobeying governing authorities. So I've written some of these down. Hebrew midwives. Exodus 1. Exodus 1, verses 16 through 19, this is the Hebrew midwives, where Pharaoh says, okay, the, these Jews are getting to be way too big. Whenever they give birth, just, just kill, the, kill the kids. That's the, that's the Hebrew midwives. That's what the Pharaoh tells them to do. And verse 17 of Exodus 1 says, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh commanded them, but they let the male children live. Do you see that? Kill the children. Pharaoh says, the authority says, the king says, these Hebrew midwives feared God and said, no, we're not going to kill them. They disobey the king, their God-given authority, because to obey would have been to disobey God, right? They're, they're being asked to murder. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, in Daniel 3, right? They, they're, answer, you're not bowing down. What, what are you going to, I'll play the music one more time and you better bow down. If not, you're, you're going to be killed. To which these three men 
O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you. This is Daniel 3, verse 16 through 18. If this be so, and if you throw us in the fire, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. He's able to. And he will deliver us out of your king, out of your hand, O king. But if not, do you hear that? Even if our God doesn't, he's able and we think he will. But even if he doesn't, let it be known to you, O king, that we will never serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Oh, that, the line is drawn there, O Nebuchadnezzar. We will not bow down and worship. We serve God and God alone. Right? And, and look at how God honored that. Nebuchadnezzar says, everyone worship this God. Right? And then Peter and the apostles, Acts 5. Peter and the apostles are going around Jerusalem and they're, they're arrested for preaching. So they get put in prison. Oh, that'll, that'll, that'll keep them quiet. That night an angel of the Lord frees them from prison and says, go, go back to the temple. Keep preaching. Go. So they go, preaching in the temple. And the authorities say, well, they're not in prison. It's locked, but they're gone. Someone says, well, they're in the temple. They go get them in the temple. They sit them down before the council. And they say, stop teaching. We told you not to teach in the name of Jesus. Stop it. To which Acts 5.29, Peter and the apostles reply, we must obey God rather than men. There it is. When there's an issue, God wins. Don't get confused. As Christians, our allegiance, above all else, is to God and to his commands. Whenever anyone or anything comes in the way of that, we must refuse to obey. Now, this goes, this goes in all areas of life, all spheres. Wives, if, if you ever heard someone say, well, you've got to submit to your husband, no matter what he says or does, you've just got to submit. If he's leading you to sin, you don't submit to him. You refuse to follow him into sin. Husbands, have you ever used that as a reason to get your wife to sin? Shame on you. That's an abuse of authority. Parents, employers, governing authorities, we obey God above all else. We really ought to be thankful as Americans. And I am thankful as an American. We ought to be thankful. I know there's a lot of unrest in our nation right now, a lot of issues, a lot of division. But we really ought to be thankful to be living in the place that we are. When you think about the majority of Christians living in the world today, Right? These privileges that are ours are foreign to many, many of our brothers and sisters around the world. I mean, we here in America, we're an anomaly. An anomaly. We're not normal. Think about Christians in China today, or North Korea, or Afghanistan, or Somalia, or Iraq, or Iran. Can you imagine living in that political setting? We ought to be thankful. I mean, think about church history. It's not just current Christian living, but but. Throughout the history of the church, we, as American Christians, we are an anomaly. It is a unique experience, the Christian experience in America. And so we ought to be thankful. We ought to be thankful. But, as I was thinking about this last point, here's what I realized. I realized that to God's people, so as far back as God's people go, go Genesis 1, God's people have always been under government rule. So there's always been authorities over God's people. Some have been okay, some have been pretty bad, some have been pretty good. Some have been really, really bad. Right? There's always been flux. And it's always going to be in flux. It's always going to be different, depending on location. Right? So Christians living here have a different experience than living other places. There's no uniform Christian experience with governing authorities. Not now, nor has there ever been. But here's what I realized. Through every age Every nation, every experience of God's people under governing authorities, there has been one constant, and that constant is the presence of God himself with his people. 
God has always been with his people. No Christian, regardless of political setting, has ever been abandoned by God. Ever. That's good news. Maybe we don't hear that because of where we live, because of our current situation. But imagine hearing that in Syria today. As you leave here and, and, and someone may take your life, God's still with you. That's good news for Christians all over the world. At all times, God is always present with his people. And what's better news, if that's even possible, right? If, if there's better news, there's a day coming when there will only be good, right, righteous government. That day is coming. Not because humans will eventually figure this whole ruling thing out, right? That's not our hope, that we're going to get it together and we're going to figure it out. Our hope is that God himself one day is coming to be our king. And we will be with him. We will be his happy subjects, overflowing with love and joy and submission to our Lord and our king who we will live with. And that's good news. God will be our king And we will gladly live lives of submission under him. And so that's the day we long for. But in the meantime, right, we live here and now. Let's pray.